0: From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government
1: Matters, Defense with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Every Wednesday, we focus on defense. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Defense Department needs, quote, sustained and predictable funding from Congress, according to Secretary of Defense Mark Esper. Three to five percent of real growth each year is the number, Esper says. The department will need to keep pace with spending from China and Russia. The Washington Business Journal reports cutting back or canceling programs and moving the money to higher priorities is one possibility. The Pentagon, said, the Pentagon will move 18 million biometric data records to the Amazon Web Services cloud. A department request for information asks systems integrators how to modernize and move records and applications to the cloud. FedScoop reports part of the automated biometric identification system is already in the cloud. The Air Force's Advanced Manufacturing Olympics is underway tonight. The chief tech officer of the Rapid Sustainment Office, Lily Arcusa, says 15 winning teams will get prizes that total a million dollars. Breaking Defense reports the event includes challenges like the Box of Parts Challenge and the Supply Chain Marathon. The Defense Department will pay 15 vendors $600 million to test 5G technologies at five military installations. The department calls it, quote, tranche one of the department's 5G initiative. Brian Mazanic is a Director of Defense Capabilities and Management at the Government Accountability Office and looking at 5G across government. Brian, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. You and your colleagues are looking at 5G, as I mentioned, and you cite in your work the DOD 5G strategy, uh, 5G work from CISA and others. What's the intersection of what government agencies are doing around 5G and the work that you and your team did?
2: Thanks, Francis. So 5G is obviously a transformative emerging technology. Um, It it creates a lot of opportunities and also introduces a lot of risks for national security. Uh, Strategies and strategic documents are a key tool that the government uses to manage uh, the risks in this space, and they're particularly important for complex issues like 5G. Um, What we looked at um, in our most recent report is the 5G national strategy, The DOD strategy you just mentioned that came out this past May is one of the the subordinate strategies that will flow from and should align to the national strategy, which is why it's so important that the national strategy uh, get it right and really focus appropriately on the key issues here um, to ensure that we have a a robust uh, government-wide response to this complex challenge.
1: What did you learn about how well those pieces are connected, those various strategies that, as you call them, sub-strategies, how well they fit into or flow into an overall national strategy?
2: So our, our focus on our assessment was really looking at the national strategy, which again is sort of the, the foundation or the linchpin to the ones that will follow and nest underneath it. Um, the, the 5G national strategy is a, a good, I think, first step in, in, in beginning to have a whole of government response here. Um, however, when we looked closely at it um, and assessed it against uh, our key characteristics we look for for any effective national strategy, um we found that while it had some of the key elements that are important, it was lacking um, on some others, and really it only partially addressed most of the characteristics we were looking for. So more work needs to be done to ensure that we have, a sufficiently robust and detailed national strategy
1: you you write and you and your colleagues write in this work about six desirable characteristics you call them and i think that's a a neat term tell me is there kind of a common theme among those six desirable characteristics that you see
2: so gao developed these six uh characteristics of an effective strategy over the last 15 years or so we've applied them to numerous documents like this pertaining to other issues um what I think the the characteristics are not, and they have multiple sub elements under each. They're not um, particularly profound. They are basic, intuitive in many respects, things you'd expect to have in any kind of tool like a national strategy. So we're looking for things like, uh, is there a clear purpose and scope? Is there a problem statement, risk assessment, are organizational roles defined? So these are pretty basic elements we're looking for. I think in our assessment of the, the 5G national strategy, there were some uh, key elements that were missing. Um, So we're hopeful that the government will be able to address those going forward.
1: I can't remember the last time I talked to somebody from GAO who had one recommendation, But your recommendation is a big one. The Assistant to the President for National Security Affairs, in coordination with relevant stakeholders from the NSC and the NEC, should ensure the plan to implement 5G national strategy fully addresses all elements of those six desirable characteristics of a national strategy. Is that as heavy a lift as it sounds?
2: So we think it's reasonable and, and that they should be able to do so. The good news story here, too, so while we identified these gaps in the national strategy, which came out, Um, This past March, the same piece of legislation, the Secure 5G Act that required the development of this strategy also requires the development of an implementation plan um, that is corresponded to that. That was due actually on September 23rd. They're a little bit behind. Officials told us they should have it out by the end of this month, but We think it's entirely doable in in developing the implementation plan. They can plug those gaps that we identified in the national strategy.
1: Is this an issue that you have ongoing interest in following, or do you follow this as members of Congress call your attention to it?
2: It's a great question, Francis. So I I think we'll, we'll certainly be following up on the implementation of our recommendation we made here. So we will be looking at the implementation plan. This is an issue, too, as I'm sure you're aware. There is broad congressional interest. So I expect there will be other efforts, and GAO does, in fact, have, other ongoing reviews focused on 5G national security risks and other and other issues.
1: We have have less than a minute left. Uh, What are the most important things that you would like to see uh, Congress do or that you would like to see the White House do short of the recommendations? What has to happen to get to the recommendations that you're you're, the recommendation that you're making?
2: Great question. I would say one of the key uh, one of the most important elements that was missing in this strategy was an identification of organizational roles. So the strategy was self-referential to the whole of us government and, and it didn't really identify specific agencies we're seeing issues like the russian the suspected russian disinformation campaign trying to link 5g to covid 19 issues like sweden just this week uh, banning uh, chinese vendors from their 5g networks there's a key role for cyber diplomacy but the state department's not mentioned dod is not mentioned explicitly so we're lo- hoping in the implementation plan they really identify clear organizational roles um, for the whole of government response that's necessary for a really a wicked complex problem like 5G.
1: Brian, thank you very much for joining me. It's great to have you on. Thank you, Francis. Up next, fewer small businesses doing business with the Pentagon straight ahead on government matters. The drop in small businesses competing for contracts and what the department can do about it. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Army and Navy are paying closer attention to the number of small business contractors in government. The Washington Business Journal reports the director of the Navy Office of Small Business Programs, Jimmy Smith, says even though spending has stayed the same, the number of small business industry partners has fallen. Frank Kendall, senior fellow at the Center for American Progress, former undersecretary of Defense for Acquisition Technology and Logistics. Frank, welcome. It's great to talk to you again. That dichotomy is something I'd like you to help me understand participation level lower, but percentages higher for small business than ever. What's the differentiator there?
0: Well, what I think it means that what's happening is that money is flowing to small businesses as a percentage uh, at a reasonable rate, uh, but then the number of businesses that it's going to has declined. Uh, there could be several reasons for that, Francis, uh, but I think the most obvious one is that some of those businesses don't exist anymore and that others have picked up the work. So. That's telling you that there's less competition. Uh, the other thing that could be a factor in here is merger and acquisition, where there's been some consolidation. Uh, so that's, that's a possible factor also. But I'd be inclined to think that the first one that I mentioned was more likely and probably more prevalent.
1: What's your sense of what the level of involvement should be in, uh, the, on the department's uh, part in, in sustaining that? I, I know that for a long time, the department has paid very close attention to what happens at the top of the defense industrial base structure. It strikes me that maybe the attention at the lower end of the structure has not been as close.
0: Uh, there's always been some attention to the lower end of the structure. Uh, we had a program in the Obama administration about, uh tier-to-tier, sector-to-sector, T2C, S2. It was, it was basically about uh, paying attention to the entire supply chain. The, the thing that's changed since then that I think is very helpful and should be helpful to the department is there some really good uh, to t- analytical tools available right now uh, based on artificial intelligence and data analytics, essentially that allow you to monitor your, your supply chain much more effectively than we could with the tools that we had. So I, I don't think it's new to pay attention to this. A lot of the initiatives we had uh, in funding either through DPA, for example, to the industrial base were going to smaller businesses that were critical links in the supply chain. But I think there's a much better uh, spectrum of things that can be done now and much better way to analyze the entirety of the supply chain and try to take corrective action when you need to. The other thing that I think needs to happen, and I I think that there needs to be greater cooperation between the government and the primes. Uh, The primes pay a lot of attention to their supply chains. They're dependent upon them. And they monitor them carefully. They're often the first to understand when there's a problem. I think closer collaboration between the government and the primes would, would be beneficial also.
1: In what way? How should they collaborate better? What's the information exchange? What is the uh, level of awareness into the business of the other side? How did, What does that look like, Frank?
0: Uh, I think when a small business is going to be in trouble for some reason, uh, and it's important to that, that business stay viable, that there's a range of things that can be done. Some of them can be done by the prime. Some of them can be done by the government. Uh, Traditionally, the DPA has been used uh, fairly selectively. This administration has used it in some cases, and and I think under the COVID uh, label, gotten a little bit of criticism for where it sent the money, but I don't have a problem with that. I think that uh, there are parts of the supply chain that have been effective and it's appropriate to try to help them out. The thing I'd be concerned about is whether that's being politically motivated at all or whether it's simply what's good for the government and for the country uh, basis. So there are things that can be done there, and there are things that industry can do. If uh, a member of the supply chain is basically supplying only one of the primes, then the prime can step in. Uh, and there are a range of things that primes can do. I've seen primes I've worked with do this, where they, uh, in, in some cases, will buy the business, in some cases, they'll loan it money, in other cases, they'll, you know, they'll give it more favorable terms that help its cash flow. So there's a range of tools available, and I think they have to be used in a way that's tailored to the specific situation. And again, though, if the government and industry can collaborate on this, I think it can benefit everybody.
1: What's your sense of how well those companies at the, the, the smaller end of the supply chain are doing at saying to either the primes or the department, hey, we're struggling, we, we are in trouble and we're at risk here, and we want to let you know of that ahead of time?
0: Uh, my impression is that those channels are open. I'm not sure they're always used. Um, I'm not sure the, 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 the lower tier suppliers in particular understand that those channels are open or how to use them. So I think improving the communications on both sides would probably be helpful. And I think government needs to reach out uh, perhaps more than it is. But I think they're, they're, the government is, from my understanding, has people actively working this. They're trying to you know, find out where there are problems and take corrective action where they can. And, and I applaud that. I think they're doing the right thing there.
1: You've used that term corrective action a couple of times. What, uh, what corrective action makes the most sense in, this, in the context of the original part of our conversation, Frank, about the amount of money going to small businesses staying steady but the number of those businesses declining?
0: Now, I think you have to look deeper and you have to look at the details to sort out where that's a problem and where it isn't. In some cases it will be, in some cases it won't. Um, it, it's the sort of indicator that makes you dig deeper it, it by itself it doesn't tell you all that much um, you know, I think it's inevitable that under the situation we're under right now particularly companies that are uh, supplying both the commercial aerospace as well as the defense side of the house their commercial side may have very well dried up completely so the degree to which they're dependent upon that makes a difference in whether they can endure it and get through this all right or not the uh, again you've got to go you got to go work the details it's it's it takes uh, um, a fair amount of effort. And the, one of the best things you can do is for people to kind of raise their own hands and say, I need help And of this type. It, it generally comes down to cash flow. If if companies aren't getting the money in, uh, they can't pay their bills and they're gonna go under So you have to figure out a way to, to, to relieve that. You can do it with contracts that give them cash flow through contract. You can find ways to do it through loans. Um, one of the things the government has done is move the progress payment number from 80% to 90%. The intent of that was that those you know, accelerated payments would flow down to the sub tier suppliers who needed that money the most? The, the big primes have access to capital. They, they can weather this pretty well, but small companies don't. And the intent of that increase in progress payment rate was to help the smaller companies. Uh, I only have anecdotal evidence for how successful that's been. I think it is partially successful, but I think it's something the government needs to monitor, make sure that money's getting where it's intended.
1: Frank Kendall, thanks very much. As always, terrific insight.
0: Nice. Good to be with you, friends.
1: Up next, the missing link in the next conflict. Straight ahead on Government Matters. What the military can't do now that it needs to, to prepare for war and win. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Be right back. LEADERS FROM ALL THE BRANCHES OF THE MILITARY ARE TALKING ABOUT NEW WAYS TO ASSESS READINESS. THE MISSING LINK FOR THE DEFENSE DEPARTMENT MIGHT BE ADAPTABILITY. LIEUTENANT GENERAL DAVID BARNO, U.S. ARMY RETIRED, AND DR. NOR Bensahel ARE VISITING PROFESSORS OF STRATEGIC STUDIES AT THE JOHNS-HOPKINS SCHOOL OF ADVANCED INTERNATIONAL STUDIES AND CONTRIBUTING EDITORS AT WAR ON THE ROCKS ARE co-authors OF THE NEW BOOK, ADAPTATION UNDER FIRE, HOW MILITARIES CHANGE IN WARTIME. Friends, welcome! Thanks for coming back on the program. Congratulations on the book, Nora. You write, uh, you and Dave write in this piece on war on the rocks. Is the mili- is U.S. military adaptable enough to prevail in the wars of the 21st century? Is that a rhetorical question, or are you seeking an answer there, Nora?
3: No, that's the question that motivated us to write the book in the first place, and we concluded that the answer might, unfortunately, be no. We talked about a, a lot about what we mean by adaptation. We note a lot of the challenges that the U.S. military, in particular, faces with adaptation, uh, looking at some historical cases, but also the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, uh, and offering some very specific recommendations in the conclusion for how to improve this absolutely essential attribute uh, of all militaries, but particularly the U.S. military.
1: Nora, adaptability seems to me to be especially important in light of the, the citation that you and Dave make. Former U.S. Secretary of Defense Robert Gates once noted that since Vietnam, The United States has a perfect record of predicting the next war. Secretary Gates said, we've never once gotten it right. Why does that accelerate the need to be adaptable?
3: Well, it's impossible to correctly predict the next war, and it always has been. Um, And so there's always some amount of adaptation that's needed uh, when a war actually occurs. But for a variety of reasons, we think that gap, we call it the adaptability gap between the expected war and what might actually happen is growing because we live in a very uncertain strategic environment, because the U.S. is a global power and doesn't know exactly when or where it's going to fight next, and because our adversaries uh, are likely to surprise us with how they fight, where they fight, and some of the technologies that they fight with. So for all of those reasons, uh, the challenge for the U.S. military in being able to adapt quickly enough to adjust to whatever the next war is, we think is, is growing and needs to be addressed.
1: Dave, welcome and congratulations to you as well. Two observations that you and Nora make in this piece. Future wars will involve two entirely new domains of warfare and we're living in a time of exponential change. Those two domains, space and cyber, are potentially the greatest theaters of that exponential change, aren't they?
4: I think that's right. And, you know, we're gonna be in an environment where we've never fought wars on, in those domains before. There's no history or lessons learned to draw on. Uh, it's in some ways like the uh, advent of air power in early 20th century before World War I. No one knew how that was going to unfold. And it, when the war broke out, planes went from having a minor role, taking pictures, observing, to, by the end of the war, bombers, draping ground, ground troops, and arguably becoming the most important domain in the years to come. So I think we're going to see the same thing with space and time, we don't really understand how dramatic that could possibly be in the next conflict.
1: So the the wrinkle that Nora introduced a moment ago, Dave, that idea that we don't know where or when an enemy might strike in those two domains where there's not really established uh, lessons learned type doctrine we have doctrine now from space force and we have uh, we have some cyber doctrine too but we don't know that that's necessarily based on something that's actually happened to us before what does what's the context then of adaptability in trying to respond or maybe even take action in those domains
4: Well, I think essentially we're going to have to see what happens. We have both offensive and defensive capabilities in cyber and space. Uh, Those have not been exercised in a major conflict before. We can expect that our adversaries will will have the same. And so whatever doctrine we might have or whatever thinking we have established on how this could unfold now, uh, in all likelihood, it's going to explode on the first day of the next war. And we're going to have to be uh, able to see what happens, make rapid decisions to change what we're doing, to respond to what the adversary is doing and then to outmaneuver him in those two domains where there's no tradition of how you actually attain success and achieve victory. So this is gonna be incredibly difficult. And it's also gonna impact the other domains of air, land, and sea as well. Every one of those depends upon space capabilities. Every one of those depends deeply now on cyber capabilities. And so in some ways, our conventional military, which has been vested in those domains, uh, may be outmaneuvered from the from day one by these two new domains that are gonna be so dominant.
1: Nora, what's, you make a number of recommendations in this book and in this piece. What's the biggest gap? You're writing about an adaptability gap. What's the biggest gap between what the department and the military is not doing now and that it should be doing to reach this vision that you and Dave have?
3: Well, we offer about 20 specific recommendations, but we think one of the most important ones is to strengthen professional military education for US military officers. The kind of environment that we're going to be in in the future where decisions are being made literally at the speed of light in cyberspace is going to require very uh, creative thinkers, people who can think outside the box, who can react remarkably quickly. Um, and we're concerned that, that professional military education uh, currently doesn't do quite enough of of that. We think that um, advanced civilian schooling, graduate degrees for uh, military officers is important as a complement also to what they get in professional military education because that challenges them to think differently to have different people inside a classroom with them um, and to really have a very very different experience that they can draw in and ha- that will help later in their careers but that's only one of a number of recommendations
1: dave we have about 15 seconds left when you were in afghanistan what was the skills gap the knowledge gap that you needed there that you think that uh, better professional education would would fill
4: Well, clearly to understand an enemy that wasn't like what we were expecting and that we hadn't prepared for and that I hadn't trained for in my career up until that point in time. So being able to see what I was dealing with on the battlefield, adjust to that, and make new plans based upon that was an incredibly important skill.
1: Dave Barno, Nora Benzahel, congratulations on your book. It's great to have you here.
4: Thank you. Thanks very much.
0: I'm Cherise Hanner. You can now keep your finger to the pulse of all things that matter to the business of government anytime, anywhere. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us at Twitter at GovMattersTV.